How did Gymshark win 2020? Consumer research. They worked with a test to learn more about their audience's changing habits, then pivoted their business to meet those needs. Visit askatest.com and use fast, accurate consumer research to get ahead. It's growth without guesswork. There's never been a better time to be a direct-to-consumer business. Join us as we uncover the strategies and scaling secrets of the world's most disruptive brands and agencies. This is DTC Podcast. Hello and welcome to the DTC Podcast. I'm Eric Dick and today we are super lucky to have the co-founder and CEO of Huron, which makes high-performance men grooming products without the premium price. Huron is built on the idea that guys' morning routines haven't changed a lot since puberty. Uh, And Matt and his brand both exude big shower energy. I am psyched to have him on the podcast today to talk about what's worked best for his growing brand. Welcome to the podcast. Matt, how you doing? Doing well, Eric. Thanks for having me. Nice. All right. This is take two, but let's, I think it was a really good point. So let's dive into it again. Uh, let's talk about your unique skill as an entrepreneur. Uh, the, the, the full question is, tell me about your unique skill as an entrepreneur, and then tell me what you know now about that skill that you wish you knew at the beginning. So start with your unique skill. Yeah. I, I, again, a uh, unique skill is tough and I'm glad we're doing a take two because I was really put on the spot for, for take one, but I would say uh, the ability to know what you don't know and to kind of delegate quickly off of that. And I think what I learned early on in our journey was I was really trying to tackle everything and it's a lot to where, um, you know, as a small co-founding team of two and it's just not scalable. So the quicker that you're able as an entrepreneur to identify the areas where you may not be as strong in figuring out a hiring plan to bring on a freelancer, consultant, agency, or potentially hire in-house, the quicker you can really unlock value creation. And I think for me, kind of once I had that revelation, you know, the more aggressive we were in looking for partners and folks to help us grow and scale. But it's really kind of taking a step back to say, here are the areas where I feel really confident that I can execute on but also being very forthright with yourself and saying, these are the areas where I might not be the best suited to do this particular job or task. Can you give me an example of, of, of one of those hires or one of those external partners that you brought on to, to handle something like this? Paid social. So I, I was running all of our Facebook for the first six months and we were atrocious. Um, but I also felt like I wanted to go through and kind of learn the inner workings of Facebook so I could quickly tell whether or not a future partner was executing or not. I didn't necessarily want to throw the keys to someone and say, make us great on Facebook, right? I wanted to understand what's the relationship between CPMs and CPCs and what top of funnel initiatives were working, what what initiatives weren't. Um, so it was a painful learning process, but I think getting that, uh, getting that experience firsthand definitely made me a better evaluator, I guess, of ultimately our, our paid partners. But I love that. And that's, that's the balance between, yeah, retaining internal knowledge and, 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 you know, using external partners. I think that approach makes a ton of sense to make sure that you have that institutional knowledge in-house. That's only going to allow you to get a better agency experience long-term as well. 
So nice. All right. Uh, and oh, there, there was one other point I would bring up that I would, that, that I brought up uh, previously was just that, you know, when you are making these decisions, I, we're just going through it on the D2C side of things right now where we're expanding our ad sales team. We just brought someone in. This is her first week, three days in, she shadowed me twice. She's, you know, watched me write a contract and already she's sort of improving on our processes. And I, I think it's easy to overestimate how difficult it's going to be to either onboard either a new agency or, or a new staff member. But really like if you're hiring the right people, you know, they get it quicker than you might think they will. Yeah, that's that's totally right. And, and I would say uh, a new piece to add to that soundbite um, is the bulk of the time is actually spent diligencing this person, this agency, whomever, not onboarding, right? Because if you spend the time understanding the person you're interviewing, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses or areas for improvement are, um, you can then build resources around that to put that position in a, to put that person rather in a position of success. And I think we spend a lot of time talking to talent and agencies and whatnot. And we ultimately move forward with the people that we're excited about and they're excited to potentially join the team. And then getting up to speed is actually quite the easy part, as you alluded to. So it's really kind of that investment period and kind of sourcing the person or the agency that actually takes the bulk of the time. She told this, this new hire told me yesterday that she's uh, already feeling super busy, but also super clear on what she's supposed to do. And that, that as a manager, uh, you know, just, just made my day. That's great. That's like the best feedback you can get. I love it. Nice. Okay, cool. Let's back. Let's, let's go into new territory again, uh, into the brand story of Huron. Like just looking at your brand, it is one of the crispest, cleanest, most essential looking brands I've seen out there. It's, it hits the nostalgia buttons uh, in terms of the color palette and, and the simplicity. Can you talk a little bit about the product Genesis and, and uh, what brought you to it? Yeah. So I'll give you just like a, a quick tidbit on my background, because I think that dovetails into Huron and where we're at today. But um, me originally, so I, I'm from the Midwest, uh, from Ohio, um, went to school out East for undergrad, ended up in New York after school, kind of pretending to play investment banker in 2008, which uh, wasn't exactly the best time to kick off a career um, on Wall Street. Uh, quickly pivoted, went to a startup Bonobos, which uh, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with. So D2C royalty. Right there. Sorry? D2C royalty uh, yeah, Bonobos yeah, is, right? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I was there when we were in a studio apartment surrounded by a bunch of brightly colored uh, corduroy pants. Amazing. Um, amazing experience. I spent two years there, ended up moving to Chicago to kind of get back into finance, spent some time on the investing side at a consumer private equity firm. And that was really my initial exposure to kind of the broader personal care market. We had looked at a bunch of brands that were targeting the female consumer. And for me, I was just, I was blown away by how amazing the products were, the super cool packaging elements, amazing founder stories. But yet I was a mid 20 something living in downtown Chicago, still going to CVS and buying neon green body wash, right? There was a huge disconnect. So I think for me professionally, that was always like an earmark of like this category is super, super cool. Um, I think more relevant kind of on a, on a personal side of things is I was just a kid that grew up with bad skin. So Kroger, CVS, Walgreens, you name the pharmacy or drugstore. I've combed those aisles three, four five times looking for anything that would work and spoiler alert, nothing did. Um, after Chicago, I ended up moving to the West Coast and I found myself in, in San Francisco one day. Ultimately, I walked into what is, you know, quote unquote, premium store and paid way too much money for a little bottle of face wash. Um, but the product worked. It resonated with my skin like no other product had to date. And I think that was kind of the light bulb moment for me, which was, could you create something that was as efficacious as premium, but deliver it to a much broader audience? So that was always kind of like the genesis of here on behind the scenes. Um, 
And I think for me, what was super interesting was really at the end of the day, I had a really distinct vision of who the consumer was because it was me five to seven years ago and kind of understanding the struggles that that guy's going through, the number of products that he's tried and failed with, quite frankly, could we be the answer for that person? And this kind of dovetails into the name Huron, which I talked with Thomas a little bit about yesterday. Um, so Huron, after looking at and evaluating so many names in the creative process, it was kind of hidden in plain sight directly in front of us. So Huron was a street that I lived on in Chicago where arguably my skin issues were at their worst. Um, even so much as I had a boss one time tell me like, are you gonna fix that at some point or like what's going on? So not exactly the biggest jewel of confidence for, for 20 something. Um, so for me, it's really cool to kind of internalize that. I look at the name all day, every day, and it's always just like a subtle tip of the cap to the consumer and the guy that we're fighting for. Um, so that's that's like a cool kind of brand story background. So that's kind of where the name came from. I love it. I, I, I grew up on Lake Huron in the in the uh, in the yeah. summers, and to me, that that's when when I saw like the cool. I, it's interesting that it doesn't have a lot to do with, with it, other than that street is probably named for the lake, um, yeah. but it's got that crisp feeling to it that that clean that clean vibe that your brand just really exudes and that kind of leads me to my next question which is you know you represent a customer archetype of someone uh, of someone who's like trying to solve a problem very problem aware willing to try different brands willing to go into all these different things but i imagine for most men uh like it's still i know this this narrative is is changing but there's still a lot of men who who take self-care and their skincare and as as sort of an afterthought they're using whatever's in the shower from their wife's products or they're still using old spice or mountain dew brand you know body wash or whatever so I, i'm curious about how you think about your customers like the range of customers from from your example as well as to others as well yeah i mean the the customer that you kind of outlined uh is precisely one of our customers right it's he suffers quite frankly from decision fatigue, which is over the course of your week, month, what have you, the last thing you're gonna do is go into Walgreens and read the back of a body wash bottle and look for the ones that are paraben and sulfate free, right? It's just not gonna happen. And I think for us, the, the most exciting opportunity is also our biggest challenge, which is how can you effectuate consumer behavior change? How can you get this guy off of buying the exact same product that he's either bought for himself or someone has bought for him for the past 10, 15, 20 years? And I think we have an opportunity to hopefully speak in a, in a tone of voice in a way that resonates a lot, um, to present really cool packaging, to talk about the product formulations and the efficacy, um, and just kind of meet him where he's at in the, in the consumer process. And I think that opportunity is something we don't, we don't take lightly. And um, it's really, really exciting for us as a brand. So that's kind of one archetype in particular. Another end, of, kind of the other end of the spectrum, if you will, is maybe a consumer who may be a little bit more in the know. I mean, maybe he's been exposed to some of the more premium products and he's on the lookout for things that may be free of certain chemicals like a paraben or like a sulfate. Um, and we offer all of those qualities. So what we can preach to that consumer is the value play, which is, hey, this body wash is the fourth of the cost of what you're currently using. Why don't you give us a shot? And I think one of our secret sauces is, you know, a brand that's less than two years old is my co-founder, coincidentally named Matt, which make th makes things easier or more difficult depending on the day. Um, I mean, he built these products for Estee Lauder for upwards of 20 years. Wow. So between a corporate innovation role and working on formulations, I mean, he kind of knows this world in and out. And I think having that level of expertise and experience that early on in a brand's life cycle is, is pretty unique. So I think for us, from a quality standpoint, if we're stacked up next to one of the incumbents, if you will, we have a really high degree of confidence that our product's going to win. I love it. So you've got you've got the problem. You've, you know, those two types of, of customer archetypes. Are there any other customer archetypes that you're speaking to? 
I would say from like a like a buying behavior standpoint, those are kind of the two those are the two ends of the spectrum. Um, I will say there is a consumer kind of in the middle that like has been exposed to maybe some more of these D2C brands and maybe a bit more willing to switch things up. Um, and look, like we we have a unique opportunity to resonate with that person as well, right? Um, totally. So it's just the messaging changes slightly, but I think our mission to provide a plus quality product is the same regardless of whom we're talking to. One thing I wanted to ask you about when I was looking at your di different customer archetypes was, you know, when on our email team, we recently did some content where we undercover, we, we uncovered um, uh, a t-shirt brand that, that we're working with uh, where we thought they were hundred percent sure that all their sales were, were by men, but we, we, we took a look at their email list. We broke it down and it was actually like 40% women were actually buying these shirts for men. And I was wondering if that's a market or a customer archetype you've, you've grappled with at all, or are women just more likely to hope their husbands use the same body wash as them? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think for us, you know, we operate in a unique category where she is oftentimes the buyer. So the ability to resonate with her from a formulations perspective, from a product quality perspective, but also similarly in a tone of voice perspective, right? We kind of take this very like text worthy skincare um, type messaging um, and it's been resonating across both, which is, which is really, really exciting. I think one interesting data point that we've seen from a number of different reviews is women will buy for the guy in her life, whether it's partner, brother, coworker, whomever. Uh, and then she'll get exposed to the product and she'll be like, now I'm actually buying it for myself. Um, so that's been like a really interesting customer journey to track with, with a number of our customers. Very cool. Um, the one, th the other thing that stands out, I'm, I, right when I jump on your page, I see the three jumbo bottles, uh, bigger bottles than even my wife has in her shower. Can you talk a little bit about the jumbo strategy and, and how that's helped you grow? Yeah, really good question. So that started off um, not necessarily as a strategy per se. So we originally created the jumbos to be placed into gyms, into showers. Mm. Um, and we had all of those ready to go in February of last year. And then insert a global pandemic. And not only are people not showering at the gyms, that gym, those gyms aren't even open. Uh, so we kind of had them on our shelves, just collecting dust at our fulfillment center. And we were thinking, you know, what can we do to kind of get some momentum or traction behind these things? So we ended up sending one email to our base around the jumbo body wash. And we forecasted that we had anywhere from four to six months of inventory on hand for those, for those products. So um, sent one email and we sold out in eight days. So we were like, holy smokes, like what's going on here? Um, so we quickly got, got back into production and sold out again, and this time in like two weeks. And we were playing catch up for all of 2020 in terms of inventory. And I this think is mostly from email sales? This is mostly just from your list, like free sales? Yes, exactly. Nice. Which, which was incredible. I mean, we just started running ads on paid social for the jumbos like three weeks ago because we never felt comfortable about the inventory levels. Um, so that's been really, really exciting. I think I think there's a few things to double click into, whether it's a convenience play. What's like, Hey, now I have 32 ounces of body wash. I don't have to think about buying body wash exactly. for the next four months. Um, it's something that like the whole family can use. There's a pump, which makes things super convenient. Yep. There's a lot of different kind of hypotheses around why these have gained so much traction, but it's been really fun to see. I will say too, that like the male consumer is just like an interesting beast in himself where we'll get first time customers who've never purchased the products before, who will buy three or four jumbos at a time. And you're like, you've literally never used the body wash, but you just bought a hundred and something ounces of this that will last you for quite some time. But 
it just goes to show you, it, it's just really funny. We, we oftentimes will slack like different orders across, be like, wow, look at this one. This, this is hilarious. He's a prepper. He's a doomsday yeah, prepper. Exactly. He wants to stay clean in the apocalypse. Exactly. Uh, I love it. That's really cool. And the, this, the jumbo thing, yeah, it just suits your customers so well. It, it, you know, it is that sort of set it and forget it idea that once, okay, this problem is solved, you know, this is not something I have to think about anymore. Um, so, I wanted to dig in a bit more on what, on how this, on how jumbos came about, which was about your gym partnerships as gyms are starting to open up. Um, I'm sure this is maybe, you know, an, another, another part of your strategy, but again, it's, I think it's a really smart way to get men um, to think about changing their routine in a way um, just by having these in, in these gym showers and things like that. Can you talk about that strategy a bit? Yeah. Um, you know, th that's one of kind of the interesting, we'll call it like atypical wholesale strategies that we had even going into launch, which is where are guys kind of naturally exposed to these products and how can we be front and center? You know, I think kind of the, the best analog or example of this partnership has been Kiehl's and Equinox, right? I mean, Kiehl's has been an Equinox for a decade longer. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of guys were exposed to that product line. So the thought is, you know, can we leverage gyms um, as a unique kind of, again, wholesale opportunity that's not, that can not only kind of bring the cash register for us, but also, and more importantly, expose a lot of consumers to the brand who wouldn't otherwise know about Huron. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a huge win for us. Very cool. Um, I've got a note here about uh, some of the things that you're doing as an entrepreneur that don't scale. And I always find this really interesting because it's something that as we grow, you know, maintaining that connection to your audience and, you know, really understanding them on a, on a deep level is, is super critical. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you've done that you would consider not as scalable, but have worked well? Sure. Um, I think some of these non-scalable tactics actually can end up creating step function type growth. And one of the things like I firmly believe in is if you imagine a Venn diagram and one of the circles is what other brands can't do, maybe they're too large, there's too many hierarchical structures, there's too many layers, and then what other brands won't do. It's perceived as too taxing, too time consuming, not worth the effort, the ROI is not there. If you can operate in that sliver and find ways to do things that other brands can't do and other brands won't do, I firmly believe there's a lot of value unlock opportunities. So a few examples like um, last summer, for instance, uh, in New York, I would hop on city bike and literally hand deliver all local orders that came in on Friday. And I think that was like a really cool experience to go deliver however many orders there were, um, but just to spend five or 10 minutes with the consumers and like, how'd you hear about us? Like what other products would you like to, you know, have us make in the pipeline or like, what about your current products? Don't you like today that you use? And just kind of getting that one-on-one -on -one IRL interaction, like it's become, you know, kind of a thing of the past really, especially in, in a era of a pandemic, but transcending and kind of being a brand that operates in real life in person, I think is really, really important. And we were able to really activate some super users because they were the recipient of a, a home delivery. And they viewed that as being like something that was pretty cool that other brands weren't doing. So just one example of things we've kind of, we've done in the past. That's cool. And then, and then, so the feedback that you get there, this as a founder, um, you know, being, the, being the, the point person for that, you just like, what did you do with that information that you, that you got from these people? Did it inform your, you know, your marketing decisions? Did it, it, are there subtle ways that it informed your understanding of your customer? Are there, are there direct takeaways that you took from, from these meetups? Absolutely. I mean, I think anywhere from feedback on components to fragrance, to, I mean, just so many learnings and nuanced pieces. Um, we're pretty engaged with our base. I mean, we send out quarterly surveys, if not more frequently 
to figure out what's working, what's not working, what are areas for improvement. You know, we have a Slack community of a few hundred guys that we tap into pretty regularly. That's been awesome. And that's a neat. really good sandbox for us. Um, I've not heard of that approach of, of using Slack in that way as, as a product sandbox. Can you talk a little bit about how you built that? Yeah. I mean, so it started out probably a year ago where we would ping consumers who have more than, let's call it like greater than five purchases. And we just invited them to the Slack channel. We kind of hear the guidelines like, all ideas are totally fair. We're going to ask you for feedback. We do monthly recaps. So last week we just sent on our March recap where um, we're definitely kind of probably oversharing, but it's cool because consumers in general like to feel like they're, you know, they get the, the inside look at a brand or they kind of understand what, what's happening from a day-to-day -day perspective. But we ask very tactical questions as well. We're like, why don't you subscribe? What would be more attractive from a subscription offering? Or if we were to make this product, what size would you like to see it in? So we're, we're getting immediate feedback, which for us as a super small team of four is super important because now we have a group of 200 plus folks to tap into versus just four perspectives. That's amazing. And then with, so you, so the weekly, so the monthly recap that you send, does that go to your whole list or does that just go to the people that are opted into the Slack? We send it first on Slack just because obviously there's more like a, there's more control a bit. Mm -hmm. Now if someone really wants to like copy and paste the Slack message and send it around, like, of course they can probably do that. And, but it's a bad actor. Um, but no, I mean, it, it's meant to give people kind of the inside look. And I think for a lot of people, there's this entrepreneurial itch that we're, will forever go unscratched, right? There's always this like, oh, I had this idea or I wish I would have pursued X. Um, and we're kind of giving this opportunity to kind of feel like these customers are kind of co-building here on alongside of us. And I think the, uh, the feedback has been great thus far. Very cool. Let's talk a little bit about, about your growth and about your marketing, about your, your, your marketing mix. Where are you guys at in terms of just at a high level in terms of, you know, organic paid and Amazon? Did you have that breakdown sort of roughly? We do. Um, I mean, at, at a super high level, we, we kind of our primary acquisition channels, obviously page page social, and then we are on Amazon. Um, Amazon for us has been a pretty big component of our business that's grown substantially every month since we launched last February. Um, it's it's less than half of our business, but it's a it's a pretty big component. Um, but the majority of our traffic and the majority of our eyeballs still come through paid search, paid social. Amazing. And then how do you think on that paid search, paid social side, how do you think about uh, initial profitability uh, like ROAS concerns essentially versus the, you know, your LTV. Cause I imagine you do, especially when you're, you, when you have these jumbos, like, you know, once someone has that and it's been in their shower for six months or whatever, you know, they're most, they're likely to re up. So sure. I'm just curious about how you think about user acquisition and profitability in the short term. Yeah. I mean, I think profitability for us kind of falls within that umbrella of efficiency and we mandate that we have to be profitable on first purchase. Like that's Amazing. like a hard stop for us. Um, I just don't, like we have to treat all of our customers as if unfortunately, like financially is that they're not coming back, right? Because we can't expect someone to come back 10 times in a year and then justify that from a, from a top of the funnel paid acquisition cost standpoint. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're maniacal around acquisition costs and where we're tracking our CPAs. Um, I think the replenishment equation is very difficult because you might be someone who quite frankly loves to shower. So you may shower three times a day, but totally. there may be someone else who's like, I didn't do anything today, so I'm not showering. Yep. And they shower every other day. Or they so, use a tiny amount versus a huge amount or whatever, those, right? Those are two extremely different use cases. So for us, it's like a really fine line between 
how do we miss on that window where you've run out of product and you maybe didn't hear from us so you go to the store and buy something else or we annoy you right yeah. which definitely we don't want to fall in that camp so again we're constantly getting feedback around what is the right usage cadence how quickly are you going through these bottles and then we a b test our flows all the time is the replenishment flow set at 45 days is it 50 days is it 53 days is it 55 days and we're tracking open rates we're tracking click rates um so we're you know we're, we're pretty granular when it comes to a lot of the testing especially on the replenishment side because we feel like if we can get you to come back for purchase two three four then there's a high degree of likelihood that you could be a huron customer for the next five to seven years that's awesome. And I imagine the jumbo strategy has played heavily is, is another great tool in your arsenal to get those AOVs up and to get that profitability off the first purchase. What else have you done in terms of bundling, in terms of ways of like getting that AO? Cause it's not a super high, uh, it's not an expensive product, right? You're not at that hundred dollar natural sure. sort of single product uh, AOV. We do a lot of bundling. Um, so we, we would much prefer to lean into free product as kind of a lure versus like a dollar percent discount. So we'll bundle three or four items and make a fifth product free or a fourth product free. Um, and that kind of benefits us in two ways. One, there's just like an aura around dollar off percent off that we don't necessarily want to build for ourselves, but also it gets a customer to explore more of our line, right? So you may buy the shower kit and get a face wash for free, but maybe you really like your face wash or you're really not in the market for a face wash, but then it arrives and you use it and you're like, actually really like this. Like, I'm definitely going to buy that next time. So, you know, for us winning with product and we like to say, like, let's use product as a weapon. Um, how do we get more product into people's hands and as many opportunities as possible? I love it. Uh, who came up with big shower energy? Cause that's, you come on this, that's, that's, I don't know if that's been your hero for a long time or if it's just something you're testing now, but, uh, it really, it just, it, it's such a fun phrase and I can uh, feel it. I understand yeah. it. I know that feeling of that big shower energy. Uh, I think I put that up last Friday. It was nice. literally one of those stream of the moment things where it's like, Hey, I have an idea for a hero. And we sent it on the Slack and I got three thumbs up, uh, emojis. So I was like, all right, guess, guess we're good to go. So we, we like to act quick, but I love it. That, that's how we do things as well. Uh, I have a note here, you know, we, we're, we're embarking on an amazing partnership with uh, Yachtpo SMS. Uh, and to me, uh, SMS is like one of these really uh, asymmetrical opportunities in, in your marketing stack, uh, given how how much it's open and, and how, what a valuable piece of attention that you have with SMS. I'm, I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about what, what Huron does with uh, with their SMS strategy? Yeah, for us, it's definitely a newer channel as it is for many brands. I think one of the pledges that we've kind of made internally is respect the digits. Like let's not use this to constantly be ringing the cash register, but let's really internalize whether or not we're providing value with every single external message that we send, whether it's email, SMS, what have you. But for SMS, I think it's even more important. So for us, I mean, we're still testing a little bit around what does our subscriber list want to see that's non-transactional? Is it longer form blog posts? Is it little competitions? Is it product related updates and initiatives? So we try and send between two and three SMS messages a month. And with each send, we've seen our unsubscribe, unsubscribe rate continually decrease um, and orders increase. What's funny is like, I think the last SMS we sent was, was literally a link to a blog post. And that again, like ultimately drove more revenue than some of the transactional related SMS messages that we were sending earlier on. So I think less is more when it comes to the SMS category and channel. So we're trying to figure out like, what is the right cadence for us? And are we indeed 
creating and offering value with every single message that we send, because I think at the end of the day, that's what's going to win customers and consumers over for the long run. Have you, I guess you haven't ruled out transactional, hey, save 15% on this bundle or whatever, but but the balance is sort of between that and and add value content pieces. Yeah. And for us, like the the rough ratio that we've come up with is it's three to one. So for every one bundle transaction, you name it, we have to send three that are just simply non-transactional, whether it's a, you know, a GIF of UGC photos from like us picking up new product or blog posts or educational content. Like that's where we can add significant value and actually create value. Uh, so we want to lean in on that and maybe pull away a little bit from the pure play transactional stuns. Nice. Um, very, very cool. Uh, one of the other things I want to talk about here was marketplaces. You, you've talked a little bit about uh, some of your the places where you're sold in retail. Uh, you've got your Amazon strategy. Uh, how do you see the importance of marketplaces sort of evolving in the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, for us, we we are working with a few kind of marketplaces, a few curated marketplaces right now. Um, it's really cool to see kind of this next level of retail, next phase of retail starting to emerge. I think marketplaces will continue to be a growth driver for us and for many brands, especially if you can kind of create content around those. So if those marketplaces are actually creating content internally, creating reviews, you know, long form content, just to give brands kind of that third party validation of like, yes, these products are really good because we've spent 60 days using them. Right. So I think that's for us, like the attractive intersection of these marketplaces is not only a place to buy here on, but also a place to learn, not just from us, like what the brand's about or what the products are about. So kind of marrying those two concepts of content commerce and then pure play marketplace is something that uh, we're really excited about. Nice. Uh, that sounds excellent. I, yeah, it's such an interesting category. You're going up against Unilever. You're going up against these, you know, these, these big legacy brands. I'm, I'm curious, what, what are your, what are some of your, your plans in, in the coming years to really, uh, just gain just more top of funnel awareness? Like, are you looking at, have you ever, have you looked at, you know, celebrity endorsements or, or, or anything like that? Have you, have, what, how are you thinking about, about growing awareness? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's something we debate internally literally every day. Like this is such a top of the funnel exercise for us because we firmly believe and have the conviction in our product. Whereas if you have the chance to use our product, like there's a high degree that you're going to come back and purchase. Mm. So how do we get product in people's hands, whether that's sampling, whether that's refer a friend, like there's so many different opportunities to kind of like shout from the mountaintops who Huron is. It's just figuring out like what are, what are the right ways to kind of activate those initiatives on not an infinite amount of money, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so figuring out like what that priority stack is. But I think for us, like we have to identify like what are our branded cheat codes? Gone are kind of the days in our category where you can create arbitrage on Facebook, right? It's very difficult to acquire customers for $2.50 a pop. Maybe that was the case in 2013 or 2014. That's not the case in 2021. So are there new platforms? Are there new outlets? Are there new channels that we should be exploring to kind of identify those arbitrage opportunities? Nice. Very cool. Well, this has been a very eye-opening interview. Uh, I, I'm, I'm feeling the big shower energy as we speak here. Um, I wanted to ask, one of the questions we always like to ask is, uh, you know, if, uh, let's say the Canadian government were to grant Huron uh, a $50,000 non-payable, you know, you don't, you don't have to pay back this grant. Where in your marketing efforts do you put that $50,000 over the next three months? Content creation, 
hundred percent. I think as a, uh, you know, as a smaller brand that's less than two years old, like we're always running into content, you know, uh, shortening runways, if you will, where it's just so important to test. And the only way to test is understand like, what are the visuals that are resonating? What are the messaging points that are resonating? So finding out how we can kind of amplify our content creation efforts is always something that we're exploring. Um, and then maybe some initiatives around like getting physical product into people's hands, whether that's a, a blown up um, sampling campaign or thinking about branded partnerships or ways we can just actually get physical product in people's hands is, is certainly something that we would explore as well. Very but cool. we're, we're definitely open to that 50K grant. So let us know if that- Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll call up Justin Trudeau, see what he's saying. Yeah. Um, it's funny, we were just doing some prep for an interview with another brand uh, uh, called Bloom. I don't know if you know Bloom. They're, they're a, a female sort of self-care skincare brand. And they're actually working across categories, which is interesting because they're sort of like a menstrual brand, um, a skin brand, and they have, they have some other health pieces. They're really in that like jobs to be done category. And I'm wondering in terms of your products, where your mind goes to, to where your products might develop in the future. Yeah, uh, one, they're a great brand and we've been following along. We love emails and the SMS campaigns that they send. I think they do an amazing job. I think for us, we see growth in the product realm um, via breadth and depth. And what I mean by that is 2021 will be an exciting year for us for new product launches that we've had in the hopper for quite some time. There's three SKUs off the cuff that I can think of that should be released in the next few months. Um, but we're also working on iterations of our existing line, right? Whether it's different sizes, different iterations, whatever it is, whatever, you know, whatever it is um, that makes the assortment just feel larger, right? Uh, I think what Bloom has done really well is kind of that horizontal expansion, if you will, and thinking about tangential categories around broader self-care that makes sense. I think for us, uh, in kind of dating back to the first question, honestly, one of the things we're pretty good at as a team is focus mm. and how do we make sure that like we are laser tight on exactly what we need to do to execute with the assortment that we're super, super excited about. So we will start to build out um, new products going forward and we will always have a robust pipeline. But for us, it's always focus, focus, focus. Very cool. Nice. Well, I want to thank you coming uh, for coming on the podcast today. If people want to get in touch uh, with you, learn more about Huron, they can go to usehuron.com uh, in order to try some of this fantastic body wash uh, and, and other awesome skin products. If they want to know more about you, uh, how, how would people potentially get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm a pretty open book. I'm just mad at usehuron.com. So I feel like this is one big exercise of kind of paying it forward. I've benefited a lot from people, you know, giving me their ear for, for 10 or 15 minutes. So happy to chat with anyone who has any questions. Very cool. All right. Thanks again, man. Thanks, Eric. Okay. Peace.